0: to the
1: Wherever you are, you are managing to beat the heat. I can tell you here in Southern California, uh, it has been brutal the last few days. Uh, we are battling triple-digit heat uh, on top of our drought and the raging wildfires. So we are really uh, experiencing uh, the intensity of summer like uh, you wouldn't believe. So it's, uh, it's kind of tough here, but uh, we're, you know, we're keeping a, um, uh, you know, we, we love our summer. We, we love our, our sun goddess, and, uh, you know, summer is, is when we revel, and uh, so we will endure. Well, thanks goes out uh, to Celia uh, for use of her music tonight. Uh, that was uh, her cut uh, titled Connected. And uh, tonight we have a great uh, guest on the show. Uh, We have Michael Haupt uh, discussing uh, the topic uh, Patriarchy's Perfect Storm, Sacred Feminine Technology. You might be scratching your head a little bit thinking, well, what, what 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 does he mean by that? Well, um, he describes it as a powerful concurrence of exponential technologies, rising global consciousness, and feminine energy, which is sweeping the planet. And he says it's all great news. And you know what? We can sure use it. So uh, you want to stick with me? We'll be starting that interview in just a few minutes. Uh, but to all my new listeners, because I know every week I can tell from the stats. There are new folks in all different little corners and pockets of the world. Um, I am uh, your hostess, Karen Tate, and I have been um, humbled to be named one of the 13 most influential women in goddess spirituality, no doubt because of this show. Uh, I've also been named a wisdom keeper of the goddess spirituality movement. Uh, I'm also the author of several acclaimed books Goddess Calling. Uh, one of the most recent, also Walking an Ancient Path, Sacred Places of Goddess, 108 Destinations, and uh, I also um, compiled the anthology, Voices of the Sacred Feminine Conversations, to reshape our world, based on interviews done right here on this radio show over the last uh, 10 or so years that uh, I have been on the air i'm also a very affordable life coach another service that i provide the community so if you're ever in need of that kind of help or life facilitation think of me as a resource uh i used to just uh you know people would find out about me uh word of mouth but i thought uh, you know what i have a little bit more time and i can make myself available to more people so if uh this sounds like something you might uh, want to chat with me about. Don't hesitate. You don't have to be local because I do life coaching over Skype uh, and uh can be audio or video. I, and I make it really easy and affordable and meaningful. And uh, some people even say, you know what, it's fun. <laughs> So anyway, uh, when you're checking out my books, um, maybe you should uh, uh, look at the rest of the stuff on my website at KarenTate.com. Lots of free stuff there. Uh, You should avail yourself of it and uh, enjoy. And uh, just a couple uh, other announcements before we start our interview with uh, Michael. I wanted to let you know that this Sunday is the first of four talks that I am giving at the Goddess Temple of Orange County slash Museum of Woman. Uh, yes, indeed, that is an umbrella. Um, organization now and you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks when the center holder of the Temple and Museum uh, is uh, a guest on the show Uh, but these four talks that I'm doing um, the fourth Sunday of uh, June July, August and September Um, under the auspices of the Museum of Women, are going to be on the topic of partnership. Yes, indeed, Uh, because uh, when it gets right down to it, I think uh, partnership uh, is the idea that can help humanity save itself uh, help us save the world and uh, we have all sorts of partnership, we have partnership with ourselves partnership with our intimate others, partnership with our local and global community and partnership with our our spirituality, with nature, with our deity Uh, and this Sunday I am starting at the beginning with the importance um, of partnership with self, so I will introduce that to those uh, there gathered, uh, because I've been invited to guest minister this Sunday. So I uh, just wanted to put that out there in case you're in the Southern California area and uh, you've been thinking about uh, making it over uh, to hear one of my talks or maybe attend one of the Sunday services. This might be just the incentive you need. Also, too, um This Saturday over at the Goddess Temple, Saturday night, uh, because that talk is Sunday morning, uh, but Saturday night is uh, the Joseph Campbell Roundtable uh, over there at the Goddess Temple, and uh, the topic is going to be the myth of Inanna, uh, given by Dr. Grace Hogstead. So uh, it's a big week over there, big weekend, uh, Saturday night, the Joseph Campbell Roundtable, and then Sunday morning, um, you know, I'll be giving my talk. Also, too, I wanted to, uh, oh, uh, and then in July, uh, before I forget and move on to the next subject, uh, I am actually going to be giving my Joseph Campbell Roundtable talk in Venice. Uh, that's going to be July 10th. Uh, So mark your calendars, again, if you're in Southern California or particularly if you're near Los Angeles in the Venice Beach area. July 10th, I will be giving my Joseph Campbell Roundtable talk on reawakening our earliest sacred stories. It's about uh, actually rethinking, reawakening, reinterpreting goddess mythology and showing how it is really relevant today and how we really should not have swept it under the rug. We should not have... um, Uh, Turned it, uh, uh, you know, tweaked it so that it had a patriarchal bent because it's egalitarian uh, mythology uh, aspects and it's um, sacred feminine mythology aspects really do give us some ideals, uh, you know, that can be guideposts to help us uh, create a better world. So I will be talking about that at uh, Beyond Baroque. Cultural Center in Venice on July 10th, but as we get closer I will mention that again. Uh, also, for my final announcement tonight, uh, I wanted to uh, put it out there that I am looking for folks who plan to go to both the Democratic and Republican conventions who would be willing to call into the show and sort of be a, a roving reporter and tell us what they are seeing and hearing and experiencing at both the Democratic and Republican conventions coming up in July. Um, I can work with your schedule, we can maybe alter the day, I'm pretty sure the, um, the conventions are like Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday nights, so maybe uh, you know, we can figure out what days are going to be best, but um, I would love to hear from you, so don't be shy, uh, you, know, you can just be a reporter on site. Uh, chatting with me, telling us, again, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, uh, because you know as well as I do the Main Street media is not telling us what's going on. And uh, who knows how much will be kept from us. Uh, if we leave it up to the Main Street media. You know, no doubt there will be lots of folks there with their cell phones, uh, thank goodness, so um, they can't hide everything that's going on. Uh, but I think this would be a great idea. So um, let me hear from you. You know, don't, uh, don't be shy. Uh, please uh, get in touch with me. Let me know if uh, you'd like to, uh, to do this. And you don't have to do both. You know, you can do one or the other. Um, Anyway, let me hear from you. I think, uh, I think that would be a lot of fun. So uh, let's get uh, to tonight's show. And uh, as I said, I have Michael Hopped with me. And let me tell you a little bit more about Michael before we start our chat. Uh, he's a strategist, a speaker, a mentor, an advisor, uh, tracking the ever-accelerating progress of conscious. Combinational Technology, the Simultaneous Rise in Global Consciousness and What It Means to Life and Business. He's currently based in Cape Town, South Africa, but he's lived in 16 cities on six continents, and he's visited more than 400 cities, villages, mountaintops, and islands in his travel. Uh, His past uh, corporate career in technology combined with a deep interest in consciousness and feminine energy has led him to create the 2100 Pendulum, a detailed analysis of the rise and fall of patriarchy through 1,200 years of Western civilization. And to find out what we can expect for the remainder of the 21st century, you can download the model at no cost at his MichaelHaupt.com. Now let me spell that for you, because um, I'm sure you probably can't figure out how to spell his last name by just hearing me pronounce it. It's Michael H-A-U-P is in Paul. T is in Tom. dot com, That is his website. So, Michael, uh, welcome, welcome, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine.
2: Good evening, Karen. It's fabulous to be with you and uh, and with your listeners. Looking forward to our conversation.
1: Well, thank you. So are are you uh, um, in uh, Cape Town, South Africa right now? I I know you're not uh, in the Pacific time zone, I don't think.
2: Yes, I am, and it was interesting to hear you explaining your uh, summer and the very high temperatures you're experiencing. It's winter for us now, 3 a.m. in the morning, and uh, it's freezing cold.
1: (laughs) Oh, gee. Well, it, it couldn't be any more different extremes. Yeah, I, yeah. The opening of the show, I was trying to figure out how do I put a positive spin on the, you know, how we're suffering this uh, this particular uh, summer solstice. But uh, um, you know, it is what it is, and uh, global warming is real. You know, what else? Uh, what else can I tell you? Or at least I sure think it's real. <laughs>
2: Um, I was there last summer, and it was hot, and it's even hotter than than last year, so I can just imagine how you are struggling.
1: Well, you know, it's really gotten to the point where I don't know how people can manage without an air conditioner. Um, I mean, I feel sorry for people who are on Social Security uh, or or limited incomes uh, because the heat is really life-threatening, and um, I I just, quite frankly, don't know how we're going to manage if it keeps getting worse. But, uh, okay. you know, uh, we shall see, we shall see, um, but anyway, so um, interesting topic tonight: patriarchy is perfect storm, sacred feminine technology. Um, you know, I think probably I've never heard sacred feminine and technology. Uh, in the same phrase, so uh, why don't we start by what in the world do you mean by that, and what are some examples of sacred feminine technology?
2: What a great question to start with. Thank you. So uh, my background is technology, and one of the things I've noticed is that ever since the Industrial Revolution, technology has been focused on improving productivity and efficiency, And that's one of the last things that humanity needs. If you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, one of the lowest requirements is connection. And although we talk about the ability to stay in touch with friends and family via Facebook and other social media, there are many psychological studies that have shown that we're in fact more disconnected than ever. And so my argument is that technology, although it's um, increased the economic productivity of the world, it's failed at its most basic requ- human requirement, which is to establish connectivity. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that I'm seeing a huge shift towards focusing more on connectivity. Artificial intelligence is bringing some incredible promises to the table and at the same time I'm seeing a rise in global consciousness. So, to me, it makes perfect sense to merge the... Interest in spirituality and advances in technology uh, into one conversation. Typically, those have been two very separate spheres of life, and they've never been spoken about together. Um, All I right.
1: Well, we, well. Wait. Before we get too deeply in, let's talk about your how you're viewing the 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 connection aspect. You know, you you mm-hmm. said um, even though we're more connected, you think we're actually in fact more disconnected now part of that I think I might understand because um, I think because so many people are constantly looking at their telephones Um, They're not really connecting with their neighbors. They're not talking with their family, their friends. I mean, I went to dinner with somebody not that long ago, uh, and I thought we would, you know, speak over dinner, and I found him looking at his phone more than actually trying to make any effort to have a conversation with me and my husband. Is that what you mean? We're losing the ability to communicate one-on-one? Um, And maybe like on Facebook, we tend to say stuff to one another because we're anonymous that we wouldn't say if we were face-to-face?
2: Correct. The single word I use to describe this lack of connection is empathy. And Ah. the easiest way of establishing empathy is eye contact. We've got so little eye contact these days because of the way technology has enabled communication. So you and I are talking to each other from across the other side of the world, but we don't have eye contact. And so it's very difficult for us to form uh, you know, a, a very deep connection. Um, and technology is doing the same thing. So yes, grandparents, for example, at the other, on the other side of the world, can see updates from their children and the family and so on and, and share photographs, and that's beautiful but there's no deep connection. There's no real empathy established. Uh, That requires eye contact. And technology, the the newer versions of technology and artificial intelligence, which we'll get into, allows the analysis of um, uh, not only your eyes, but your emotions that you're feeling. And we're getting closer to establishing that deep empathy that we get with eye contact. But right now, we're not there yet.
1: Okay, okay. And and you mentioned artificial intelligence, which also makes me think of robotics. You know, um and and I don't mean to go off in a different direction here, um it, but maybe it is related to where you're going. You know, I worry about that. I mean, we're already in a position where um uh jobs are being mechanized and people can't make a living, jobs are fewer. Um, and I don't know how we're going to deal with that. I mean, I've heard someone say that, you know, the companies who put people out of work uh, because they're using robotics are going to have to pay a premium, and maybe people will just be paid a stipend because the jobs uh, are disappearing off the globe. Um, does that factor into um, any, you know, where, where you're going with this conversation, or is that out in left field?
2: It's very much part of the conversation and I suspect that during our chat this evening we're going to go in in a a number of different directions because this conscious combinatorial technology touches on so many areas of life. So let's talk briefly about jobs. We've come from a period of mechanization where our education system produced factory workers that just do the same rote job over and over and over again. Now, the world is changing, and robots need to replace that mundane work. We need to find work that has purpose and meaning. We're in a transition period right now, so we're struggling to get our minds around what that means. I think robotics is a a, a gold center for humanity because it's going to move us away from doing the same thing over and over again and move more towards purpose. There is going to be some pain. There are going to be some job losses. Fortunately, there are people working on what the future of the work looks like. One particular organization is based in San Francisco and it's called Innovation for Jobs, doing incredible work on trying to answer some of these questions. So it's a, a very big topic, but it's an exciting topic. It's not something that we should fear. I'm looking forward to the next 20 years or so.
1: Well, that's, that's positive. I mean, I imagine a world – I mean, w- what you're talking about reminds me of um, what I remember of Star Trek, for instance, when it was mm-hmm. on television. And it seemed like people had more freedom to pursue uh, their authentic self, you know, and I can imagine if robotics – does the the jobs that needs to be done then people will have more free time to pursue their gifts to pursue their passions if there's a way that they can do that and still have um, a quality of life where they're you know they still can have a roof over their head and education and food on the table
2: and and that's where we're moving so there are so many paradigms that need to shift before we make that happen This concept of having a roof over your head based on an income that's generated by work that you do, that entire paradigm needs to be questioned. So there are groups that are looking at a minimum basic income where everybody on the planet there's sufficient wealth tied up right now sitting in gold vaults and bank vaults that is not serving humanity. And so there are groups around the world working on a minimum basic income where every single unemployed person is given, the amount that they're discussing is around $1,000 per month, um, which allows you to stop worrying about poverty, which allows you to stop worrying about a job that is meaningless and that you're not enjoying anyway. And it unleashes that creativity that has been trapped in the minds of so many people that don't, they, they aren't creative because they're worried about where their next meal is going to come from. So there right. are significant developments underway. However, I need to keep reminding your listeners and, and myself that we're in a period of transition. And so things look and appear to be very bleak right now. But as we get into the discussion, uh, hopefully I can explain why we're going through the transition period and where we will be in 10 or 20 years' time is extremely exciting.
1: Well, you know, that does sound exciting because, I mean, I remember my first few jobs out of school, they were just mind-numbing, and I don't think we are put on this earth to work ourselves to death. I mean, so many people now are working two and three jobs just to keep that roof over your head. And not that, yes. you know, uh, and I'm sure, you know, that there's always the small element of people who might not take their time and use it wisely, and who knows what they might do. Maybe that's just up to them. Um, and, and so it does sound exciting. But on the other hand, when I think about Republicans, for instance, uh, or your corporate Democrats, who hmm. – you know, have this idea—the uh, welfare queen. Don't want to give anybody anything. You know this. I yeah. mean, I I think it's going to be a hard sell to get people with that mentality to agree to this um, this stipend kind of uh, idea. But yet, aren't there countries that are experimenting with it right now?
2: There are countries experimenting, and. You know, we, we talk about the different political parties, and I, I was so pleased to hear during your introduction that you're looking for roving reporters that are going to tell it as it, as it is. The, there are a number of well established systems that are currently being challenged and are in the process of crumbling. One of them is politics, another, another one of them is economic systems. So, in order for us to move to this brave new world, it's going to require an acceptance that these existing systems may not be there any longer. The entire concept of politics, and I'm talking globally, this is not only the, U- the U.S., <coughs> is one of um, separation. And I was so excited to hear that you're doing work on partnership because I believe one of the areas you'll cover is partnership in politics. What does it mean for us not to have competing parties? What does mm-hmm. it mean for us to come together and create solutions to problems that don't come from political separation so yes there are people that are going to look at this stipend approach to minimum basic income and are going to resist it because it goes against the existing paradigm so as I said earlier in the conversation there are interwoven topics that all need to be looked at separately but not solving problems the way we've solved them. That's a famous Einstein quote, you can't solve a problem using the same level of thinking that created the problem in the first place. Now, this is another reason why I'm excited about the transition that we're going through, because with a swing to a more right-brained view of the world and a more feminine view of the world, we're going to come up with solutions that that supersede, that transcend the problems that we've created now. I know I'm not answering the question directly, because I don't think there is... An answer that can be answered from a republican or democratic perspective. We need to think about these problems very differently.
1: Well, that, yeah, I get that. I mean, you know, at this stage of the game, uh, you you know, you can't say exactly how it's going to unfold. But I think it's exciting just knowing that there are great minds out there on the case, so to speak. That. Um, this gloom and doom, this austerity that people have been living under, this domination, uh, this exploitation—that re- you know—it really could be uh, a thing of the past, and humanity would be free to evolve and vibrate on a higher level, and uh, just excel and maybe do things we never imagined would be possible. I mean, I mean, they say we only use 10% of our brain. Imagine if suddenly. Um, 50 years into this, we're using, you know, 50% of our brain. Um, you know, what might that be uh, for humanity? I mean, it, it, I, I think it's incredibly exciting.
2: Hmm. Couldn't agree more. There's two ways of looking at where we're at right now, because things are pretty bad. Let's, let's face it. Although I'm excited, our current status quo is not good uh, on any level. Uh, And so you can look at how bad things are and complain and moan about it uh, and and not move forward and not come up with solutions. Or you can look ahead and say, hang on, I see some trends, we see some changes, we see some uh, directions in which we're moving that are incredibly positive. What can we do to accelerate that shift? Uh, And that's what my work is all about, is bringing positivity, bringing a reason for being excited despite all the doom and gloom around us. So hopefully we can get the interest on of why that is uh, in the rest of this oh. conversation.
1: All right. Well, um, well, let's start with um, you've you've seen some patterns. You said, you know, um, what patterns have you found in your analysis of, say, the last 1,200 years uh, of, of Western civilization's history that's relevant to what we're talking about tonight.
2: Fabulous question. So I've always been interested in this difference between left and right brain thinking, and we'll get into a little more detail about what those differences are. But essentially, left brain is often associated with masculine energy, and I'm going to use language that I think your uh, listeners are familiar with. Mm -hmm. Um, So left brain and masculine energy is is very logical. It's scientific. It's measurable. Whereas right brained energy is more typically associated with feminine energy, uh, which is far more artistic, it's empathic, it's, there's connection, nurture, love, it's all of the softer um, values that we, we often talk about. Now, during this conversation, I'm, I'm going to keep things very high level because you can easily get into a lot of detail that can confuse the issue, but let's keep these models as simple as possible. Uh, because they are fairly complex topics that we're talking about. So I've been interested in this left versus right brain thinking Um, and in my studies and research I realized that typically it's a single thought process or an activity doesn't occur only in the left or the right brain hemisphere. So for example if you're painting a picture which is an artistic uh, creation, that activity doesn't only occur in the right brain hemisphere It occurs in both, and it's the way that the two hemispheres exchange information between them that is the interesting part. But then somebody asked me a question about whether there have been trends throughout history. In other words, through the rise and fall of civilizations, could it be that different civilizations were predominantly left or right brains thinking, and and that fascinated me, and for a long time I searched for people who had done historical research on this and and couldn't find very much, so I decided to go and look through history and see if I could see these patterns, and what I realized is that over a period of roughly 300 years, there's been a giant pendulum that has swung from left to right over the past 1,200 years, so very briefly, um, let's look at four of those periods. The early Middle Ages, which lasted from the year 400 to the year 1000, and peaked at about AD 900, that was very much a a right brain period. They were very close to nature. Um, A lot of agriculture plots were an acre in size, and they measured what, what they called a furlong which was 200 yards by one chain, or 22 yards wide. But the reason the length of a furlong was chosen, it, it comes from the old um, ancient word furrow long. It was chosen to respect the plow oxen, because it was the distance an ox could comfortably plow before requiring, requiring a rest. So that was how closely connected they were with nature during the early Middle Ages. So that was a peak on the right-hand side. High Middle Ages, which was from the year 1000 to the year 1300, was predominantly a scientific and educational reform period. It's when the first universities were established. The Catholic Church peaked, it reached the peak of its political power at this time, and they led a number of crusades. So, you know, it was a period dominated by masculine energy and left brain thinking. There was a lot of command and control. There was no partnership. It was all about warfare. Um, so that was a, a high-left period. Then along came the Renaissance period, which was between 1300 and 1700. And this was predominantly an artistic and creative period, typically associated with right-brained people. Um, and these traits often re- referred to as feminine energy, as as we've said. So there was the re- Renaissance period the people on the right. And then along came the Industrial Revolution period, which was between 1760 and 1840. And that peaked at 1800. As we know, the, the um, Industrial Revolution period was predominantly a scientific and mechanistic period, associated with left-brain people, who tend to be logical, strategic, and rational. So, very much a left-brain brain period. And my analysis then, so I extrapolated it and said that if we look ahead another 300 years from the year 1800, it takes us to the year 2100. And it seems that we're swinging towards the right again, ever since the um, hippie movement in the 1960s, who um, rebelled against the formal way of doing things. They wanted to be more free. There was a lot of drug taking. So very much expressing the artistic and creative energies. So we'll get into the transition period, which is where we are right now. And I see that extending to about the year 2020 or 2030. And then we're very much into um, a, a society dominated by right brain thinking. I went through that very quickly, but is that image of the pendulum swinging from left to the right over a period of 1,200 years? Does that make sense?
1: It does. Um, it really does. And In fact, I hadn't thought of it the way you presented it, but, um, yeah, you're sort of giving me a different perspective of those times. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. So what's exciting about this is if we look at You know, how society has developed and some of the the major societal problems we're looking at. One of the key characteristics of the left brain way of looking at the view, uh, viewing the world, is that you look at um, separate parts of the whole. You, You very seldom look at the whole. And so, if we think about how mechanization has improved productivity at the expense of the environment. With a pure left brain way of looking at the world, that makes sense because we're not concerned about the whole. We're only interested in increasing productivity. Um, Whereas with a right brain view of the world, it's a much more holistic view. We take into account the damage that you're doing to the environment. So up until probably 20 years ago, there was no concern about any environmental damage. There was no concern about global warming. Now right. as we shift more towards right brain thinking, we we're very aware of the damage that we're doing to the planet. So it, it's all a good thing that, that we're yeah. shifting this.
1: Yeah, it, it it does make sense, you know, because I'm I, I I was initially thinking, you know, going back over that time period, it felt like such a a dominator left brain, patriarchal uh, you know, time of, you know, control or Authoritarianism, and even though it still feels like that now, I can see your point that things are shifting and things are getting better, even though it's, it, it, you know, we, we still feel like we're chafing at the bit.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's the other problem with history is for us to make sense of longer-term cycles like this. We've got to remove ourselves from the struggles that we face on a day-to-day basis, and try and identify these patterns that last over more than one lifetime. So the reason I'm I'm excited about this is because if the model is correct, and I I must stress I can't find any solid evidence of this, I can't find anybody who's done a, a detailed study of this, but it certainly seems to make sense so far. So if each cycle does last 300 years, it seems that there's a period of between 50 and 100 years in the middle, which is the transition. It's the lowest point of the pendulum swing. It's also the the period, it's also the time where the pendulum swings fast. As it reaches its peak, it slows down. So if we think about time and the way we experience time right now, time seems to be going very, very quickly. Everybody complains about running out of time. There's not enough time in the day. So it seems that just at that, that point of time seems to confirm that we're at the low point of the pendulum swing. Um, in, in my analysis if, if we say that our transition started in the 1960s and then looking f- towards the future I use the point at which affordable computers will equal the power of the human brain and use that as a technological marking point and Ray Kurzweil, who's written a book called The Singularity is Near. He's one of the artificial intelligence heads at Google, so he knows what he's talking about. He's predicted that that point in time will be reached by the year 2025. So I've used and those point two. Back, I'm ago. sorry.
1: Would, would, well, well, first, let me ask you, is there any way you can turn your volume up just a hair?
2: Uh huh. Is that any better?
1: I think so. I think so. Because I, I was struggling just – I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was struggling just a tad uh, to hear you. But if, if there's any way – yeah, I, if if you can make your volume higher, that would be great. But, but going back to what you just said um, – uh, a, a, you're, you're marking time based on when computers become affordable, meaning that you know they're going to be in every household, even you know the poorest of the poor, kind of a thing, or in all schools. Or um, can you just elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, apologies for not, it, Hopefully that's clearer. So when I said affordable, I mean computers will have uh, the power of the human brain. Affordable computers will have the power of the human brain we're about 10 percent of the way there but with exponential increases in computing power and disk storage and so on we're going to get there very quickly so it's not so much about computers as we understand them it's computers that can process artificial intelligence and have the computing power of the human brain we're a long way away from that
1: I see. Okay, so it's not just the computers we have now. You're talking about an advanced computer that can process like our brains process.
2: Correct, yes, and and in a size that we can easily carry around. So you can see the uh, power of mobile phones that have increased significantly um, over the past few years, and and that exponential changes will continue. So the speed at which improvement is coming is getting quicker and quicker and quicker. Uh, So Ray Kurzweil taking this, this trend into account has predicted that 2025 is the year that we reach that point
1: so that's so 2025 you're marking that as uh i mean and i know we're generalizing here i mean it's not like we're writing it in stone but by 2025 i mean that's not that far away i mean that's uh less than 10 years what what are you what are we thinking um how will life be different then
2: So, and and it's a great question, which will probably take up another three or four hours of discussion. To me, 2025 marks the end of the transition period, which means it's the end of the struggles that we're facing right now. We're going to see significant solutions coming up in the next 10 years, as you pointed out, that, that that provide solutions for all of society's major challenges. But the solutions are going to come from a level of thinking that we're not used to right now. And it's, and it's because it's more of a right-brained solution than a left-brained solution. Right now, and, and one of them, the other markers I use is the United Nations um, Sustainable Development Goals. They have 17 goals that look at the world's 17 greatest problems like poverty and climate change. And all of the solutions for those 17 goals are left-brain solutions. They're coming at the problem with the same thinking that created the problem in the first place. In the next 10 years, by 2025, we're going to see solutions coming from a right-brain perspective that that miraculously, in inverted commas, solve these problems. So at, at a high level, without answering the question just yet about how life is going to be different, like I'm, I'm hopefully giving your, your listeners hope that there are solutions on the way, and even though it may not look like it right now, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, 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 it does. And um, you know, and 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 of course, I, I assume you're going to get into what you think some of these solutions would be, especially as we're like threatened with you know climate change and. Um, you know, they, they say that uh, I think the military or the CIA says that that is a huge, could be a huge potential security problem. I mean, is climate change, for instance, something that will be a catalyst to uh, move us forward rather than be our demise, you think?
2: Yes. So, unfortunately, humanity requires something significant to cause unease and distress before major change happens it's like the frog in a pot of boiling water um, you boil the water slowly and the frog either leaves the hot water because it becomes so uncomfortable or it dies and that's the point that western civilization in any case is facing right now um, and, and i don't want to get into too much of a doom and gloom because things are bad uh, climate change is certainly a significant problem but if we see that as a great catalyst for causing some of the changes that are necessary, we're at a tipping point. So many people have have mentioned that in a number of books and writings, Um, and and, and that's why I'm hopeful, because we can take the significant catastrophes that we face and view them as an incentive to change our behavior.
1: Well, and, and you also talk about combinational tech. So it's going to kind of be a systems approach in a way to, um, you know, to, you know, all different sorts of technologies uh, I, I, coming together from what, the private sector or a government and um, corporate interests or, I mean, what what can we see at this stage looking ahead for these next 10 years?
2: I think we're going to, and, and certainly in the work that I do with, Um, female technology founders in Silicon Valley, I see a trend that that is impossible to ignore. And what I mean by that is most technology, because it up to date, most technology technology today comes from a left-brain way of looking at the world, which takes, and if we think about all of the apps available, if you have a smartphone, you more than likely have 10 to 20 to 40 different apps that do very specific things. And, and that's because the left brain view of the world breaks things down into their constituent parts. It never looks at everything that's required to make human life productive um, and meaningful. So you've got each of these little apps doing one tiny thing. Whereas when I talk about combinatorial tech, there are founders of technology companies that are taking existing technologies and bolting them together. In a way that creates something far more meaningful, so one company that I've worked with recently speaks about the mother of all apps. It's one app that does everything that all other apps do individually. It's a much more holistic view of the world um, Does that make sense yeah 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 it does um it it, it, it
1: that's uh yeah i mean that that's that's pretty exciting. Uh, especially if you extrapolate that out and um it, you know in into a lot of different fields mm-hmm. you know and and it is is there is that noise in the background on your end or is is that just the mi- maybe your it, mic or something
2: no it, there is unfortunately a crying baby in the background so I oh eat.
1: okay well,
2: we'll, well
1: can't do anything so about I'll, that I'll i understand
2: I'll, I'll um when we're not talking,
1: um, so can you give some examples of how this? you think this tech, you know, all of these different sorts of techs could solve uh, some of our biggest uh, challenges?
2: I'll use one example because we, we could get into quite a bit of detail here. So, one of them is very simply called 3D printing. Um, if we think about our entire distribution system right now. It's based on products being built in a factory and then using you know, various modes of transport to get those products to the end user. Whereas when we look at, and so climate change is very concerned about reducing vehicle emissions and you know, finding alternative ways of shifting products around. But that's an example of using the same level of thinking to solve the problem. What's required is to remove the entire distribution chain completely so that products are produced at the point of of usage. And so 3D printing right now, which involves the use of building a product from scratch, is still very new, but we're gonna see significant improvements and increases in how that function works. So that very soon, we'll be able to print our guess Half of all of our daily requirements at home. Um, wow. Are you familiar with 3D printing?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know what you're making me think of here. I, I'm going back to the, the to the Star Trek analogy again. But what was I'm, I'm trying to remember? What was the device that they had that could. Uh, create almost anything I mean they would just walk up to it and say what they wanted to eat, and it would it would create it uh, i I think it also created stuff besides food too for some reason i can 't remember what it uh, what it was called but that's that 's uh you know you 're reminding me of that you know it 's like these ideas uh you know from these you know these early days of Star trek, you know much like the flip phone and the, uh, the tablet, you know, all of these things we saw in Star Trek that seemed so um, innovative. Now we have and don't think twice about them. Uh, you know, I mean, do you see the day when we have these 3D printers in our home?
2: There is so much that we can learn from science fiction. And so you you're spot on everything that uh, Star Trek kind of built to our consciousness is what we are going to see happening in the next 10 to 15 years. So the, the entire concept of dematerialization, where they could um, teleport an object from one place to another, in fact they would teleport humans from one place to another. Right. Now we'll get to the point that we can eliminate all modes of transport and move anything around via teleportation. Right now it's difficult for us to conceive that, But 3D printing is essentially doing exactly that. It's taking something, converting it into bits and bytes, sending it via a computer system via the Internet to a printer in somebody's home and printing it right there on their desktop. That is exactly what was predicted in in Star Trek and other science fiction novels. So it's no longer as impossible as it it appeared 10 years ago. And the rate at which progress is speeding up means that we're going to see much quicker development and so is it feasible is it possible i absolutely believe it is and if we use Star Trek as an example of how to solve the world's problems i think we're going to solve them a heck of a lot quicker than the way we're trying to do it right now which is just by reducing vehicle emissions as a simple example so we need to right. think about removing the entire transport process then we're going to solve the problem
1: Well, I I hope if we use uh, some of the Star Trek uh, technology as a guide, we also go back to some of the Star Trek morality, too. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, how cool would that be in my lifetime that I could actually beam myself uh, from here to Australia, for instance, in seconds and not have to... Uh, you waste fuel and energy and time uh, sitting on a plane for 20 hours or something like that uh, Wow that would uh, that would change so much just that uh, that that one technology wouldn't
2: it yeah I, I agree now there's going to be many naysayers as you say but that's impossible we'll never get there Um yeah. You know, with with the same thinking, it's impossible that we could have the computing power in a mobile phone. Twenty years ago, we would look at it and say, that's impossible. We needed to have massive computer rooms with air conditioning. Nowadays, you walk around with that mobile power in your hand. So, again, going back to two different ways of looking at the world, it's easy to say that it's impossible to to teleport yourself from where you are now to Australia. Um, Or you can say, that's really exciting. Looking at a world that way solves immediately all of the problems that we have right now. To me, I prefer taking a more positive approach. The, um, the, you know, it, It's just a, a much more pleasant way of looking at the world, whether it's true or not, because it, it's another part of creating our own reality.
0: When we start yeah.
2: focusing on these different solutions, we'll find that we get there anyway. So that's why I enjoy having these conversations, because I know that your audience are interested in creating their own reality. So let's look more at what appears to be impossible because in that process of considering an impossible outcome, we will get to that outcome. That's the exciting thing about it. And that's another part of left-brain thinking is we concern ourselves so much with how something happens and we have to project, plan everything. We've got to have steps to achieve that entire process. Whereas right-brain yeah. thinking is focused on the outcome and the how will take care of itself. So if you yeah. talk about teleporting to Australia, let's focus on that outcome rather than concerning ourselves with how it's going to happen and we'll get there much quicker.
1: Yeah. Well and you and you know, and, and I don't know if this fits into the equation either, but you know, the struggle that uh people like me here in the United States that are having politically, I mean I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter and you know, yeah. we're going up against these um uh, you know, people who would maybe rather have the incrementalism of a, of a Hillary in the White House, and some of us say, well, you know, uh, it's it's long past the time where we can wait for incrementalism. We need to make some giant leaps. Um, it, it feels like the incrementalism is fear-based left brain, um, the old way of doing things. And I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but, you know, wanting to take, uh, leaps a bit faster, uh, to do more, uh, things that, um, uh, invest in people uh if, you know you know like the you know the sort of the Bernie Sanders approach where we invest in people rather than you know or continue to be dominated by you know uh corporations uh, that feels like the future that feels like the right brain partnership uh caring economics uh uh nurturing future than to just, you know, hold on to this old snail-paced incrementalism.
2: Couldn't agree more. Um, it, you know, when you talk about corporations and, and governments, to me, those are all examples of the opposite of partnership. And it, it, it makes perfect sense because they were established du- during a period of left-brain thinking, pretty much since the Industrial Revolution. And so they serve their purpose. Let's not they're not right or wrong, they served their purpose for a while, they created incredible economic wealth, but now they've run their course, and now it's time for something else. So, during our transition periods, we need to expect, welcome, and embrace uncomfortable change, and we shouldn't be too concerned if economic systems collapse. We've seen that in a number of countries through Europe, we've seen um, um, political systems collapsing in, in a big way, and that's all okay as long as we're comfortably embracing that change, we're going to see new solutions coming out of that. And, and I love Bernie Saunders' views on, on the world. I, I love your approach with partnership. I, I've done that process that you're going to go through, the, the partnership, the um, Center for Partnership. It's just a great way of looking at uh, existing structures and asking the question, are they based around partnership or are they based around control and command?
1: Right. Well, and you know, going back to the Star Trek analogy for a minute too, you know you've making me start to think about <clears throat> um, you know will the monetary system be different I mean, remember in Star trek I don't think they had money anymore um, and uh and i and I can't remember what you paid for things with, but do you think we're coming to a point where um you know we're gonna we're gonna have some sort of different way of paying for things. Um, I don't know if I don't even know how to language it any different than that, but does that mean anything to you?
2: Another huge conversation so the, I'm sure you must have had speakers on your show before that talk about the economic system and how money came to be and the creation of debt. So we won't touch on that. But just from a technology perspective, there are incredibly exciting developments in the cryptocurrency space. So most people are familiar with Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin isn't, is a very early cryptocurrency technology. There are huge developments in that space that involve secure contracts. And so if we think about money is purely a means of exchange and when we engage with somebody else all we're looking for is a fair means of exchange. So if I uh, if you help me in some way through some of your services then you expect some kind of exchange of value and the easiest way of doing it right now is through money but there are many other ways of doing it. It's a huge conversation and I'd love to get into detail but I don't I think we may run out of time on that. So just in the back of your mind keeping the phrase cryptocurrency, I, I think we'll see money replaced by cryptocurrencies and secure contracts.
1: Okay, yeah, there was a uh, I, I don't recall the name of it, but there was a TV show on not that long ago, and with people uh, people literally paid for things with time, and their lives were worth so many minutes, uh, hours and minutes, and everything they did, took time out of their time bank, and their life was over when they ran out of time, and anyway, it, you just, you know, making me think about that with the cryptocurrency, uh, yeah, and I've heard of Bitcoin, and I mean, I think about the, in the olden days, when, you know, they bartered for things, I mean, shells, you know, shells was a form of currency even, you know, so um, it's not like we've always had uh, credit cards and paper money. Um, So Well well, let's talk a little bit about Poverty Um, You know what do you see Tech doing to um, eliminate Poverty Another great
2: question I'm sorry another great question Yes Um, So you've hit the nail on the head Talking about time because it's the only Resource that we can't replace I'm sorry I'm going to have to Take a minute and just quickly deal with the crying. Sorry, would you mind?
1: Uh, sure. You know what? Why don't I put some music on for a minute, and uh, and then you and, uh, and and you know then then you can come back on the other side of this. Okay.
2: Thank you. Sorry about this.
1: All right. All right. So we're going to go ahead and connect it. excuse to play celia's entire cut and that was connected by celia so um let's see if uh if michael's back with us or if he needs a little bit more time hey michael are you there
2: i am back karen apologies for that but that was a beautiful song so thank you for sharing (laughs) that with
1: us Oh, no problem. We, we can be flexible here. After all, you know, so many of my listeners are uh, feminine oriented and uh, it, that, you know, life, life gets in the way, what you going to do, you know. Uh, but we were about to uh, talk about how tech can alleviate poverty. Um, so tell us about that hope.
2: So, yeah, as I said, another huge topic. There, there are two erroneous underlying assumptions about poverty, and this is certainly in the, in the work that I, I'm doing that I've discovered this. The, the first is that money or income or wages or even resources are scarce. That, that's a, a current belief. And we believe that they need to be distributed mindfully and carefully. But the reality is that we live in an abundant world, and resources are there are plenty of resources around but they are currently unequally distributed based on a false sense of what makes a human deserving or successful Um, so we we can go into detail on that but I I think your listeners will get that that there are very wealthy people in the world uh, and they've got there by abusing their power or by taking advantage of people that are in quotes less powerful than they are. Um, But the entire concept of poverty comes from this mindset of scarcity when we live in an, an abundant world. So that's the first erroneous assumption. And the second erroneous assumption is that an income can only be earned through the capitalistic view of production of goods and services. Whereas the reality in nature, if you look at the animal kingdom, is that there is more than enough for every species to prosper without additional production. There's no other animal on this planet that has to work to generate an income to get food on on their table. Yes, they have to go out and find food, but they don't have to be involved in productive uh, um, energies. They're usually involved in creative energies. Um, And and so this issue of poverty is is not so much about exceeding the United Nations benchmark of one (laughs) how do we provide a basic income guarantee to cover basic expenses for every human on the planet? And if we do a breakdown of global wealth, there is sufficient wealth to to end poverty immediately. But for me, it's, it's not so much about ending poverty. It's more about how do we create wealth? How do we redefine what wealth is? How do we remove the, the discussion about an economic system from poverty, The two are not interrelated, and they shouldn't be. And so we touched on cryptocurrencies previously. To me, I don't know what the answers are, but I believe the answers lie in cryptocurrencies uh, and the establishment of contracts between suppliers and, and users of products and services.
1: Well, and it's so, part of this, too, that we redefine... And maybe you said it, um, and, and, and I didn't quite grasp it, but... Um, it it is is part of this also redefining wealth in the sense that um we don't look at um how much money in the bank or how many toys we have or how big our house is uh, those aren't the you know the the goal that's you know that's not the goal anymore you know maybe the sure. goal is education or experiences or uh, how we are in service to humanity, maybe we measure wealth differently.
2: I couldn't agree more. To me, it's about meaning and purpose. You've more than likely heard of how many unhappy, wealthy people there are in the world. It's because they they have a lot of money, but they have no purpose. They have no meaning to their life. And so for me, that's the measure that we could and should be striving for. And yeah. that can only come from a right-brained view of the world. When we're so focused on productivity and efficiency, meaning and purpose don't really have any meaning. Um, and this is why, to me, the transition period is exciting, because now we can start having those conversations. What does it mean to have a meaningful way of earning an income? What does it mean to have purpose in life? During the Industrial Revolution, you would never have be able to have those conversations. Now we can at least the conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I get on my soapbox, you know, uh, when I get just so fed up with the domination and the exploitation, and I'll say here on the radio show, I'm sure some of my listeners recall it, um, you know, I say, you know what, I'm so tired of never he- hearing our leaders talk about the quality of our lives, you know, it's all about, um Uh, you you know, uh, worker productivity, you know, it's all about uh, gaining wealth, but it's never about the quality of our lives, and um, I don't know, that just seems so um, basic to me, but, you know, it's almost as if we have, um, people have become doormats, you know, for so long that they don't even think in those terms that maybe they um, should look for or, or, or feel entitled to, uh, you know, a different type of existence, you know, a better quality of life and not just be a hamster on a wheel, you know, working, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, dusk till dawn. And, you know, it, and like here in the United States, people don't even have vacations, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's, it's absurd.
2: You raised a very interesting point there about why do people not even think this way? It's something that is so obvious, and yet we don't consider it. Why don't we have a happiness index? Why aren't, why isn't the happiness of employees considered? And if you think about it, 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 a lot of it lies in our education system. Our education systems were created during the industrial revolution. They were in, education systems were created to churn out factory workers created to churn out people who are not creative. They were taught specifically not to think. You must just cookie-cut to produce things the way we were told to do them and don't challenge the system. So we're dealing with something that is quite embedded in our society. And to me, that answers the question about why don't people even consider this. We've always been focused on productivity. Um, whereas I, I see the shift happening now, people are questioning education systems. There are so many alternative ways <coughs> of educating children. Um, that's exciting. You know, it's far it, it's more connected to. Research. Excuse the coughing. Um, but hopefully that answers the question. You know, why have we not even asked these questions before? It's because we've been indoctrinated by an education system based around mechanistic factory workers.
1: Yeah. Well, I, thank you for that, for, for that explanation because, you know, a, again, going back to the Bernie campaign, it has been uh, just so frustrating to hear people um, not want to fight for a better economy for themselves. You know, they'll say, oh, well, who is, you know, Bernie Sanders just wants to be Santa Claus. And, you know, where, where they have forgotten that in the 70s, you know, college uh, was cheap. You know, it's it's exi- as if this is a new idea, but they simply have amnesia. I mean, I know in the 70s, my first jobs out of school, which were nothing jobs, we had benefits. So it's like all of this has been stolen from us, and somehow in the last 30 years, people have gone brain dead and been conditioned, you know, to sort of just take less, expect less, and do it so quietly. I mean, I only have half um, jokingly say are they putting something in the water to make people complacent (laughs) you know Um, I I keep waiting for the revolution and the guillotines to be built but it just doesn't seem to happen
2: (laughs) it's happening unfortunately very slowly but the speed is picking up and that's why I'm excited about our future
0: Um, yeah it'll be interesting
2: to see the current U.S. elections lead It would be interesting to see whether we have a woman, in inverted commas, who represents feminine energy coming into power in the form of Hillary. Uh, I'm not going to make any predictions and I certainly won't comment on what I think of of her political ideals, but it could be interesting if we have a, a woman in that position.
1: Well, you know I I mean I think about Margaret Thatcher. You know, she was a, she was a woman, but look, uh, you know, that did nothing for humanity but create austerity, you know. I I I I worry that Hillary would be the very same thing. It might be a, a a woman's body there, but is it right brain thinking or is it just more of the, you know, more of the left brain uh stuff of the past, you know. But we
2: we shall see, obviously. Yeah, I'm glad you raised. that I tend to agree. It, it is left brain thinking coming from from Hillary. But the fact that she is a woman in a leadership position changes the way we view things. I and mean, when I say we, I'm talking about humanity. So it may be a necessary interim step to help us shift further towards more feminine energy thinking.
1: Maybe. Okay. I'll, I'll you know I'll give you that. Well well Michael, um I, I I know you're kind of under duress over there and, and you're you're struggling and you know, I'm sorry if the radio show woke the family up and stuff. I um so I, I wanna just say, you know, um was there anything else you wanted to add um that I haven't thought to ask or do did we cover it all or
2: the the interesting thing about this conversation is that it goes in so many different directions and as you've seen, it touches so many areas of life. So I'm currently finalizing a book uh, which will be coming out later this year that tries to touch on all of the areas that we've covered in a lot more detail. Uh, If your readers are interested via my website that you've mentioned (coughs) Michaelhop.com there there is a link to all of the chapters as I'm releasing them I'm making them publicly available. so the book is available right now, uh, albeit not in printed form um, and yeah there, there, there's just another way for listeners to dive into more detail if they're interested.
1: Okay, so they would go to michaelhop.com and it's that uh, download uh, that I mentioned in the intro, right that they would be able to get more info.
2: And the download takes them, there's a link in the download that takes them to all of the other chapters in the book. The download is just the model that that gives the very high level view of history to explain kind of where where this thinking is coming from.
1: Okay. And... um, And please do, when your book is out, uh, please get back in touch with me, and I'll have you back on the show, and maybe we can go into a little bit more detail in some of these areas. And um, I know you're a big traveler. If you find yourself in the United States, uh, you know, or – well. Specifically, if you find yourself in the Los Angeles area, please let me know. I would love to have you as a guest at one of the Joseph Campbell roundtables. I think this would be um, a wonderful subject, especially if there were a way we could tie this into mythology uh, you know, or anthropology or something like that. And I, I'm sure there's probably a way to do it
2: fabulous thank you and thank you so much for the work that you do it's fabulous having these kind of conversations where we talk about possibilities rather than the uh, challenges we currently face so uh, i love the work that you're doing and i'd certainly love to meet up i am in the u.s fairly frequently so hopefully that will uh, happen sooner rather than later
1: Wonderful, wonderful, and, and, you know, maybe just on the simplest level, uh, the, like you said, and, and maybe I'm just reiterating it uh, and using different words, I'm not sure, but, you know, just the fact that we are thinking, you know, that humanity is thinking that there are alternatives to the way it's always been done, um, that in itself is hope. I mean, at least it feels that way to me.
2: Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Uh, we, we cannot continue doing things the way they have been done we have reached a tipping point, we need something completely different and the, the, the good thing is that there are hundreds of thousands if not millions of people having similar conversations and the more we have of these the quicker we will reach the tipping point and see some uh, encouraging solutions
1: yeah absolutely, well you know what You you should really be doing a TED talk I don't know if you've done one or you're thinking about doing one but they probably uh, i think this would be a really interesting conversation for a TED talk if uh if the subject's not too big you know uh, watch, if you could watch this streamline it uh,
2: Watch the space
1: okay okay all right um well well michael thank you so much uh you know you this was a good topic for me tonight because i've been feeling a bit in the doldrums uh but uh, you've picked me up a bit so uh, so I say thank you, and uh, and, uh, and and my apologies to your family for um, me having you up at the middle of the night disrupting your whole household. Thank you so much for your time tonight, and I'm so sorry we woke up the family and the baby.
2: <laughs> no problem at all. Thank you for the opportunity. I love the chat and look forward to more. Thanks, Karen.
1: Okay. All right. Bye-bye.
2: Bye-bye.
1: Well, I do feel better. I do really feel better about that conversation and uh, I thank Michael for his work and his uh holistic views and a systematic approach to all of this um, You know it is really important to not be myopic and only kind of see down one little uh you know one down one little path or one little tunnel and uh you know to have more of a systematic approach and uh Uh, you know, be able to see the big picture. I guess that's, uh, you know, that's maybe one way to say it. So, uh, sacred feminine technology. I have a feeling that is something we are going to be talking about much uh, sooner than we think. And uh, that term will not be uh, something strange to us. It will be rolling off our lips. So, wonderful, wonderful. And remember, his... uh, Uh, His site is michaelhaupt.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-H-A-U-P-T. Now, before I let you go tonight, uh, I would like to read you a review about Joe Carson's new book, Celebrate Wildness, by Dana Corby, uh, in her blog, The Rant and Raven. Uh, Dana says, when people wonder aloud how the Wicca of Southern California became so much more nature-oriented and wild than the British traditions from which it arose, the one factor they don't take into account but should is theriferia. Well, theriferia, a word Fred Adams coined from Greek roots, meaning wilderness festival, is a pagan tradition unlike any other.